I think with Bitcoin, it feels like that a lot of the early excitement, adoption, like enthusiasm around that was as a counter to what was happening in the United States economically, like with the financial crash and watching these big companies get bailed out. I think there was a disappointment with how fiat currency was being used by government to like prop certain people up and not others. And, you know, this idea of too big to fail, and that feels really unfair. And I think when people are struck with a real sense of unfairness, they start to get motivated to take action. For me, a lot of the, again, the smaller ideas, I think, had been percolating for a while. I found like an old blog post I'd written from, I want to say it was like like 2005, I think, when I first started kind of like mentally playing with the idea. And so I went back and looked at the timeline. It's like my first trades happened in January of 2008. And wow. I think the first the first block of Bitcoin was mined like a year later, January <laughs> of 2009. So it was, it was yeah. definitely like, in the same space happening. Obviously, mine has stayed relatively small and that has grown on to much greater things. But it I agree. It, it it's interesting to go back to that, to that one tiny point. I, I think a lot of it is probably where I was at the time too. I was hanging out in Portland, Oregon, which was really well known in the 90s and the late 90s, especially when I moved there for being very counterculture. And mm. so so this project did come out of hanging out with a lot of writers and artists and musicians that were part of a very like DIY kind of collectivist ideas. And it, it was as much a critique of capitalism as it was a full embrace of capitalism. Hey, welcome to the Intellectual Software Podcast. And I know that you'll love this episode because Mike is most famously known as the first publicly traded person and he has given a ton of interviews uh, in the past decade. But in this particular episode, we were able to explore a ton of themes that he hasn't been able to talk to on other pods. Hope you enjoy it as much as I did recording it with Mike and uh, Happy New Year. This will be the last episode of this year, but I'll catch you next year with more episodes talking to more interesting people. And it's been a very interesting journey for the past year. And if any of the previous episodes or maybe even this one uh, made you think deep about certain topics and helped you explore a new niche, feel free to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts because that helps me reach other people and feel free to share the episodes with your friends. Thank you, Mike, for coming here. And for those of the listeners who don't know you, what are you working on? What are you known for? What are the ideas that we are going to explore today? So I am most famously the world's first publicly traded person, which I always like to explain is if someone hasn't heard of that, that's okay because I invented it. So it didn't exist before I started doing it. So no, no shame if you haven't heard of this before. However, I've been doing it for a really long time. It's coming up on 13 years. And I think now that we've entered this kind of crypto space where everyone can kind of play with economics, the idea seems a lot less crazy than it did when I first started it. So in in the shortest description possible, basically... I sell shares of myself and I allow those shares to trade on a market. And then I'll, I give my life decisions over to the shareholders. So when I'm trying to make a choice, I put it up for a vote and then the shareholders will decide kind of which way I go on these choices that I need to make in my life. Wow. And it's crazy how ahead of its time this idea was because even now when I tell my friends that, I mean, a lot of startups are beginning to start doing this, especially in the crypto space. I think Rally is doing it and Human IPO is doing it in some sense. And even now when I tell my friends in India, they're like, this is crazy because I mean, <laughs> and to do this 13 years back, I mean, how did you get this idea and what was the initial response of people around you? So initially when I started, I had this idea, I, I was doing a lot of online projects with people. It was, you know, if you go back 13 years ago, kind of a lot of the infrastructure and social media stuff that we take for granted was very in its early phase. Mm -hmm. And I kind of came up in the kind of first very optimistic wave of the internet. And I, I hold those ideas as tightly as I can, even as things have gotten a little bit darker at times. But I was doing a lot of projects that not not for even for money, just kind of fun things online. And this project was my way of trying to create an umbrella for all of those projects. So 
everything could exist within this space. And then it would allow people to kind of come in and out whenever they wanted. Some people could kind of participate economically by helping give money to some project, or if they wanted to give time, I could pay them in shares. And, and that was kind of the initial idea. It, like as soon as it started, it wasn't very long before people started asking questions about my personal life. And so I like to say that the invisible hand of the market kind of guided the project into more of my personal <laughs> life than my kind of project life. Wow. And I mean, you started this in 2008 and then the, I think the Bitcoin paper, uh, white paper was written in 2008 and some people would even trace back Trump's election to what happened in 2008. And so it's crazy when you look back, there are all these like in the history of the world, there are these cultural points where you can trace back most of the developments of today. And so I wonder if there was something to that time that influenced your idea and how you were like so eager to jump on this. Yeah. And specifically, I think with Bitcoin, it feels like that a lot of the early excitement, adoption, like enthusiasm around that was as a counter to what was happening in the United States economically, like with the financial crash and watching these big companies get bailed out and being kind of, I think there was a disappointment with how, you know, this, this idea of like fiat currency was being used by government to like prop certain people up and not others. And, you know, this idea of too big to fail, and that feels really unfair. And I think when people are struck with a real sense of unfairness, they start to get motivated to take action. For me, a lot of the, again, the smaller ideas, I think, had been percolating for a while. I found like an old blog post I'd written from, I want to say it was like like 2005, I think, when I first started kind of like mentally playing with the idea. And, but yeah, it, you know, I, I have some shareholders that are interested in tokenizing KMIKM. And so I went back and looked at the timeline. It's like my first trades happened in January of 2008. And wow. I think the first, the first block of Bitcoin was mined like a year later, January of <laughs> 2009. So it was, it was yeah. definitely like in the same space happening. Obviously mine has stayed <laughs> relatively small and that has grown on to much greater things, but it, I agree. It, it, it's interesting to go back to that to that one tiny point. I, I think a lot of it is probably where I was at the time too. I was hanging out in Portland, Oregon, which was really well known in the 90s and the late 90s, especially when I moved there for being very counterculture. And mm. so, so this project did come out of hanging out with a lot of writers and artists and musicians that were part of a very like DIY kind of collectivist ideas. And it, it was as much a critique of capitalism as it was a full embrace of capitalism. Wow. And you've, you've talking about the 90s. So how are you interacting with these? Is the internet still there? You're using it? Or are you going to local cafes and like interacting with people there? The So I was, I moved to Portland in 98, I think it was. Before that, I was in the army. And I remember, you know, a lot of all my communication with my peers was, you know, online email and and some early chat stuff, AOL <laughs> being a big part <laughs> of my life at the time. And yeah, I think the there was a feeling in the kind of late 90s internet that we were all competing in the same space. Like I remember specifically we had this blog project at the time, and a friend of mine was a really amazing designer and like in our opinion, our website looked better than CNN's, you know, because that, mm. that kind of early internet aesthetic hadn't, no one really knew quite what things were supposed to look like. Right. And so it felt like maybe because we were a little bit more native or a little bit more in tune with it, we could make things that looked better than these big established companies. And that's changed. And now there's, you know, different versions of that and, and trends and design things kind of go up and down. And I, I think, you know, there was also everything was a lot smaller right. then. So it was easier. Like I made friends through platforms like Flickr, like actual friendships developed. I had a friend that went and stayed with someone that she knew only from Flickr, like in a different wow. country, like those kind of relationships where I think that's harder to do on something like a Facebook or an Instagram or mm -hmm. Twitter or something like that. So these spaces were everything felt a lot more distributed. It didn't feel like there was quite the same mega platforms that exist. Right. Yeah. I guess when, when things are new and there's chaos, you can build 
great communities and when things are very stable it's kind of like it's you can't do that on facebook yeah and i think that's what's so exciting about the crypto space is it's so chaotic possibly too chaotic um, <laughs> but there's so much stuff happening right now i love being in that chaotic space i kind of miss it in terms of the web and it's so hard to bring a community together now online outside of those pre-established you know, silos. And so that's something I really, really get a lot of value out of with KMIKM is there is this sense of community within these shareholders of mine. I meet them in person. Some of them I've never met, but like, I like meeting them. I like interacting with them and getting to know them. Right. And what, what are the kinds of people who buy your shares? Like, is there a specific demographic that you can point to? They share a certain interest? I think that I definitely designed the project as something that if I saw it online, I would be attracted to. So, mm -hmm. you know, if, if I saw this out there, I'd be like, oh, I'll put $5.80 into that and buy a share and see how it goes kind of thing. Yeah. And so I think there's something, there's something like-minded about it to people that find it interesting, whether that's positive or negative. You know, as far as demographics, I don't collect any information, but I know it skews male, you know, I know it mm. probably skews white male internet you know, kind of things. And we, right. there was actually a vote, I think it was over a year ago now to try to address that. And so I think the one thing you can do is optionally is I was trying to get more women shareholders. There's a law that passed in California that mandated you had to have women on your board as a, as a publicly traded company. And I was like, oh, I'll, you know, kind of with that idea in mind, how do I go, how do I get more women shareholders. And mm. I haven't quite figured it out yet, but the first step was to measure, you know, how many we had. And right. by far, most of the shareholders choose not to reveal, but for those that do, it still skews heavily male. And are, so. are there people who have held the stock since 2008, nine, when you first started doing it? Yeah. Some of my biggest shareholders have been around from the beginning. And I think in my, in my mind, when I think of kind of the quote unquote shareholders, I definitely think of that kind of early core group, which is no longer the case now. Like when I look at my top 10 shareholders, there's, you know, probably half of them are people I've met in person and less than that are people I knew when the when when it first started. And they and they those top 10 hold, you know, over 25% of the shares. So there there's there's a pretty long tail of like a few really big shareholders and then it comes comes down pretty quickly. At the its core, human IPOs is about opportunity, especially with human IPOs. If you are living in Africa or India, I, I can talk about India. I mean, we have 52, I think we have 52,000 colleges in India and we need 35,000 more colleges because there just aren't enough colleges to teach our young people. And there's a lot of poverty there. So most people even can't pay for colleges. And so in that scenario, human IPOs make a lot of sense because investors can make money on picking out the next generation of winners and people who wouldn't get education otherwise can fund their education. Yeah. But the danger there is if you allow your investors to determine winners, they're going to optimize for highest oh. payouts, right? right? So I I would argue in a sense of something like so fundamental as education, you would be as a society, you know, better off if just everyone had the opportunity to go to college right. without without any of these kind of investment programs. I'm super interested in seeing the results of some of these programs that have done the rev share kind of model, you know, mm -hmm. of college where you get free oh, college. And then, school. Yeah, exactly. Things like that. I think that's, yeah. I think that's compelling and interesting. I worry about it a little bit because it feels like um, through, through this experience, I feel like I've seen a lot of the plus and minuses of being a applying capitalist and market ideas to a person. And sometimes it works out great. And sometimes it's a little weird. So I think yeah. at scale, we have to be really careful with that stuff. Right. Yeah. To Lambda's defense, I mean, Lambda CEO Austin was on the podcast and I've talked to him a few times. And the, the I think when people talk about Lambda, most people focus on the ISA aspect where they like, like the revenue share aspect. And if you read about Lambda at its core, it's about changing how education works. And so there are a bunch of stuff like when you join Lambda, they teach you networking. You need to reach out to people on LinkedIn and learn from other people who are way ahead of you in their 
career and they help you with getting placed. So if you're a Lambda student, you go to Tesla, work for free for two months. If Tesla loves you, they can hire you. If they don't, Lambda pays the fee. I mean, ISA is just one part of it. Yeah. They're kind of a bad example of an ISA because they are less a financial company and more an education company. I, I think ah, the, right. I, to me, the scary part is that if you had a company that was pure ISA, you know, that was just trying to do it from a financial perspective. Right. And again, I think Lambda is also, it's, it's one, not that they're small, they're, you know, they're very decent sized and big, but they're yeah. not, they're not the way that this works. You know, mm. it's when things get so big that they become the default that a small bad outcome gets also multiplied at scale, right? So right, yeah. if if somebody has a really terrible experience with KMIKM, you know, I only have about 1,200 shareholders. So mm. it's not going to affect that many people if something bad right. happens. Whereas if something happens with, you know, the NASDAQ, you know, or <laughs> with IBM, that's going to affect a lot more people and have a, that negative outcome is going to be a lot bigger. And so that's right. just something we don't talk about when we talk about scales. We don't talk about those negative aspects of it. I love this because I recently read somewhere that there are already platforms in the US where you can trade ISAs. So Lambda can trade its ISA and like other companies can trade their own ISAs. And when it's like, when you're separated in incentives and it's only about financials, then, I mean, even if your goal was to not do that, if the incentives are not aligned towards like helping people yep. get themselves educated instead of making more money, then like things can escalate. Yeah. And that's, that's, to me, that's where then suddenly you see, you know, maybe all the money goes into sort of these kind of technical schools, teaching developers and, and those things, because uh, we see, we see the natural outcome of that, but then what, we're just not going to teach people art and philosophy and how to think mm-hmm. and how to be good citizens. Like that's not going to work long-term. That's a very short-term financial return goal. And that I think you have to be really careful of. So yeah, that's, I think that's where some of my nervousness comes in on some of that stuff. Right. What I love about you is at its core, you are like selling shares in yourself, which is like core finance. And then on the other hand, you're so tied to like art and philosophy and books and stuff. And you're kind of bridging the gap between these two worlds. And crypto is almost like kind of that where you can see that in NFTs and DAOs and stuff like that. And it's interesting how all these different ideas come together in this one single community. I think that finance is inherently boring for most people. (laughs) So (laughs) it's really interesting that NFTs is sort of the most exciting thing for my non-technical friends that has come out of crypto, you know, in, in its 13, whatever it's been, 12, 13 year history. You know, like most people have looked at it and seen it only as a financial thing, been a little bit intimidated. And when NFT started, I saw more artist friends and writers and people started dabbling and getting interested and looking at it. Even if they had negative reactions, they still had a reaction and it was, it was a little bit closer to them. And I think that's a great example of, you know, if you optimize for the wrong thing, you know, then you only get one type of person, but these, again, one of the great things that I love about that chaotic crypto space is like, there's so many strange, who would have thought that, you know, like NFTs would have been the thing, you know, that right. these, that these arbitrary, ideas. JPGs, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. Cause it's really like a friend of mine who's an artist loves them because coming up in a, in a formal art world, like he's been in galleries. I think he was in the Whitney years and years ago. Like he's, he's an artist, you know, he, he provides a certificate of authenticity with every artwork. Mm. And he's basically saying like an NFT is just a certificate of authenticity for an idea. And you're just saying you own the actual idea. And like that artwork is worth more when it has that certificate. So I I love that idea. It's like, what we're seeing is that these, the ability to sort of sell concepts, conceptual ideas. Mm. And I love that. I mean, I, you know, it's arguable whether that's good or bad for society. (laughs) We could talk about that, but I love that idea. I'm fascinated by it. In in the beginning, I was skeptical because I was reading on Twitter all about these, like I can save these JPEGs. And then I went to, about two weeks back, I went to a lunch in London and I met this startup founder who was, so basically he was, he went to China, uh, he's from China and he went to China and he collaborated with a bunch of museums and museums for most young people are boring because they have like TikTok and Instagram and reads or whatever. And so they don't go to museums, but they love NFTs. And so what they did was they would have these huge NFT installations inside museums. And now 
they get young people coming in there and because they love, would love to see NFTs in a physical form, whether it's in a museum and stuff like that. And so it started with like people buying JPGs, but then you can see all these different businesses being built on top of that. And I think the the argument that like, it's just a, it's just a JPEG or it's just an hmm. image, you're like, I mean, that's, that's, you could say the same thing about a painting too, yeah, right? It's, like, well, at least it's the same thing, right? Yeah. And now we have the ability to make copies of that that are so exact, right? right. It's like, yeah. it's not that different. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's again, it's, it's because it's the one, it's because it's the origin of the, idea. and, and the art world has its own horrible economics and problems and, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of money gets washed through there. And, and like, it's, it's a store of value for people, for the ultra wealthy. Like there's a lot of issues right. going on there as well. So I don't think. I don't think any of the problems with NFTs are unique to NFTs, which is why it's fun to talk about. Something I love about KMIGM is that that ability to take these giant concepts of markets and economics and just drag it down to the sense that like now we can play with it. You know, like wow. I get to have a market, I get to issue shares. What's that like? It's like, what's it like to pay someone in shares and watch the price change? And but at a really, really simple personal level. And I think crypto and NFTs are just getting to that point where regular people can start playing with some of that stuff as well. Hmm. And did you, did you watch what happened with Constitution though? Oh, yes. I watched with uh, fascination amusement and I kept meaning to buy a couple, you know, to get in there. And I didn't, I, I, I don't think it's a bad story. I mean, I think it's amazing. It, it highlighted think, one yeah. of the limitations and well, I think it will keep evolving and we're going to see, we're going to see things like, everyone loves to see something like that fail. Like there's a lot of, especially like on Twitter and there's a lot of like laughing and pointing and it's like, you guys watch out. Cause you know, like when a baby starts to walk, it falls a lot, but pretty soon, you know, it's 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 going to happen over and over and over again until it's no longer amazing. (laughs) Exactly. So be ready because it's coming. Yeah. And, and I, I sent this message to a friend of mine on WhatsApp, which was like, I I joined uh, constitution Dow's discord and most people didn't know each other and they had all these channels on marketing and legal and random strangers were in that channel working on the legal stuff. Random strangers mm-hmm. were in the channel making website. And it was crazy that a few tweets brought 10,000 people together, more than that. And there were thousands of people literally working, taking their own time, working during weekends, even though they, it was a huge cultural thing but they wouldn't get any monetary benefits from it. And I, and I sent this message to a friend of mine, which is Constitution Tao has like sent us a framework on how to start visionary companies where, say, if Elon wanted to start SpaceX today, he could just throw a tweet that I will send humans to Mars. I'm sure a hundred people yeah. on the internet would be very interested in joining a discount and they would start working on it. And you can also attach monetary benefits to it if, it, if it's a company. And so, in the next one or two years, we are going to like see startups that start this way. Yeah. And probably already have, right? Like probably right. some of those early discords that have like, not even that they have to be big yet. They just have really invested communities. We're going to see stuff come out of that for sure. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. I, I was watching, um, trying to remember which DAO it was. I, I jumped on their discord and hopped into a couple of their meetings and and watching them figure out how to govern and how to run that felt it reminded me of the 90s in portland at a locally local uh, grocery co-op and going going to those meetings and watching these people try to like again regular people not experts in the space but try to figure out what are the rules what should we do build consensus you know build up to a vote like all of these things like they're not they're not new problems. I mean, I think especially as as DAOs, I've seen a lot of people talk about just like go at, go back and look at the successful co-op rules. Go back and look mm. at like how these things run. It, it, the only you know like it's you buy a share, you're a member, you get to vote, you know, kind of thing. And right. and they have the infrastructure for running a small business. A successful small local grocery store runs basically like a DAO, you know, and has for a very, very long time and has its own problems, has its own issues, has its own internal politics. These are the things that we have to deal with. I I think with the constitution DAO, it's super interesting that people were doing that for fun, you know, like that was, and and when has working on legal ever been fun, you know, like, (laughs) but in the context of that, it absolutely was. And so I think to me, that's almost as exciting as the business side is you're going to see 
communities and organizations form and people are going to be like, wait, why are they doing it? We're so, we're so attuned to thinking that there's going to be an economic benefit, but like the point of making money is to have enough money to spend, to have fun. Mm-hmm. What if you can just have fun? <laughs> then you don't need as much money anymore. <laughs> so maybe there's a, it's like a, it's like a hack to get straight to the fun part. Right. I, I love the part about co-ops because if you read the history of the internet or the internet bubble of the 90s, it's kind of like people talk about it as a very bad phase and stuff like that. What we don't talk a lot about is grocery delivery and stuff like that. There were there were a ton of startups that failed doing the exact same idea on which today giants are built in every single country. And they were just too early. They were too early, but also they were doing it. They were following, I think they were following old models. Like was it Zappos? No, no, Zappos is the shoe company. There yeah, was another Zappos one. Was shoe one. There was one that was like doing delivery. And I remember a friend of mine worked for them and she biked like across town with, and in her bag, she had a pint of ice cream and a DVD player and a DVD. And, and, you know, okay. and, this, and it was like, it was like, you know, but most of the time she spent sitting in the warehouse getting mm-hmm. paid, not working. And so part of what we've seen is the idea of looking at that model and saying, well, the expensive part is the labor. How do we right. reduce that? And so we mm-hmm. make them independent contractors, which is its own whole problematic thing, because suddenly right. by quote unquote outsourcing the labor, you're no longer responsible for your workforce, you know, to provide all mm-hmm. those things. You have a profitable business, but maybe it's bad or maybe it's harmful. Maybe not because some people are have more money than they would. I don't know. Like those are things right. we have to figure out. Right. Like, and, and I think that's what I think super interesting about the startup space is anytime there's a way to do something a little more quote unquote efficient for the business, no matter the external costs, a startup is going to find a way to kind of get in there and try that. And right. then it's up to us as people to decide, do we actually want that to exist or not? Mm, yeah. Yeah. And I, there was this page in your website where you where there are just one-liners that are very interesting, but you don't talk a lot about them. And so I want to go back to your childhood and uh, the 90s and the time that you spent there because part of the reason why this podcast is called The Intellectual Software because I believe that what people do in their 30s and 40s and whatever is so influenced by what they read and what they are listening to in the 20s. And you grew up in Alaska and I Google it's called Cold Foot, if I'm right. And the... Yeah. 2010 census on Wikipedia says the population was 10. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, I was there in the eighties and it was like, yeah, I mean, my family, my two brothers and my parents, we were five. So we were half, we were half of cold for the last. Yeah. I mean, I do think, I think a lot of my desire for community and, and for, you know, using KMIKM and some of these other internet projects as a way to establish connections with people is comes from that like lack of friends that I had growing up. I mean, just, there were no schools that were, we were homeschooled. We would, it was a six hour drive to get groceries. So 12 there and back. So we would do that like once a month, we'd go to town, you know, it, like that was a really isolating experience. But I think as a kid, you don't necessarily have the context to know that you're mm. isolated. So that right. just feels normal. And so you, whatever you grow up in feels normal. And then you go somewhere else and what to other people feels normal suddenly <laughs> feels strange to you. Right. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, I remember, I mean, like the internet's a good example of this, like arguably, like if you look at it kind of from like a fairness perspective, the internet shouldn't be as English focused as it is, right? Mm-hmm. Like yeah. it is not, it, there's, there's people that speak languages other than English and there's probably more speakers of other languages other than English. Right. But because of that early advantage, you know, there's that it's maintained a kind of a sense of inertia there. So English has become quote unquote normal. And then that creates all kinds of other systems. So like suddenly if, if English is normal online, then what's, then everything else is abnormal. And then like mm. that starts, you start getting it as like, you know, systemic racism issues and other things. And, right. you know, like a lot of that stuff builds on the underlying structure that is basically code, you know, mm. like it's coded in at that level. So I think same things happens to us as people, the things that kind of like load in very early, like you're talking about those processes you have to be pretty aggressive to go back and try to undo some of that stuff, to even even to recognize that you might want to go back and undo it. Mm, yeah. And 
you you write on your website that you spent a lot of time reading and being on the computer so like what kind of books were you reading and were you like starting to code at at a very early age i i wish i'd started to code and i i remember we did a lot of copying because that was the only way to like input a program into tape cassettes you know and and from from magazines read a lot of science fiction growing up and yeah always had a computer my dad was kind of like was kind of a gadget guy and so we always had you know whatever we had an intellivision when i was a kid a really early game system atari all that stuff as well as a pc around and yeah so it was just always there you know it wasn't it never felt it didn't it never felt weird because my my dad's work was also he would use the computer so it was just like it was like a tool that was kind of around from a really early age and i don't think it ever felt strange or nerdy or weird to be on the computer which you know like at the time, again, it probably was, except that we were in this bubble of there was only, you know, there was only five of us, <laughs> 10 of us total. Yeah. And what was your first experience out of like, out of your home? And how different was it when you like spent time with a, with a large number of people, I guess? Yeah. When I was in uh, fifth grade, that's like 10, 10 or 11, we moved to like an actual small town that had, you know, an elementary school. And I remember... Mm-hmm. That that switch for me was super hard. Like that that feeling of here's all my work for the day that I'm going to do. That's my schoolwork, and I work through it. And I can take breaks whenever I want. I can work on whatever subject I want. Suddenly going to that highly structured social environment. First right. of all, I had no idea how to make friends, and that's like what I wanted more than anything. But I had no idea how to do that. And then the education part felt it. You know, like now I look back and I, I, I probably should have thought they're doing it wrong, but I just thought I was bad at it for a long time. So it, it took a long time to kind of get over those humps, you know, and then I really kind of fell into being I like I loved school because it was social, even though I was very quiet and just kind of sat back and watched a lot. So it took a while and I was never I was never very studious, although I was always reading. I was very bad at doing homework. Because I was kind of raised, you just did the work in front of you and that was it. You wouldn't do part of the work and then part at home. And so, again, I think some of those patterns kind of like didn't really work for me in a school setting, but I think works really well for someone who just wants to dive in and try something and learn something. I feel like I'm very experiential. Like, I don't want to spend too much time reading about a thing before I want to try to implement it or try and experiment with it or something. Yeah, I, I think Paul Graham calls this shell blindness. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this right, but it's he was talking about this idea that there are all these problems in the world that we all come across, but it's so obvious that you don't see it as a problem mm-hmm. in a sense that you want to solve it. And the example yep. he gave was a strike. It's like everybody knew internet payments was messed up, but it was so obvious that like nobody wanted to solve it and it seemed like a big problem. And then the Collision Brothers solved it. And I think with you, like you spent so much time in a small household with a population in a place where the population was 10, the idea of community was so alien to you and to all of us, it was so normal. And so when you came in and you joined that uh, school, you basically saw it as an outsider, which is why mm-hmm. this idea of internet communities is so core to your belief because you have, you've experienced what it, what it is to be outside of community. So you have perspectives from those both sides and now you can build on top of that. Yeah. You, you, I think you definitely, you value something a lot more when you go from not having it to having it, right. Versus if it's just always there, you take it for granted, which is that, that idea of blindness. How do you see a problem that you've just gotten used to dealing with forever? You know, yeah. I mean, that happens like that happens just as we, if you develop some kind of like chronic pain problem, unless it like it's easier to deal with like an emergency, like, Oh, my arm's broken. But if I just have like a little lower back pain, I'll be like, (laughs) Oh, it's fine. Oh, it's fine. And then pretty soon you're like, I've been dealing with this for, you know, I've been dealing with this tiny problem forever because it's not big enough to deal with, even though this, these chronic problems can really like affect things in such a more dramatic way. Again, over time, over these longer periods of time, I guess we're just, maybe we're just very bad long-term thinkers in general, just Mm. as human beings. (laughs) (laughs) We are. Then you write that you spent a few years in the military where I learned the power of process and bureaucracy. Like, can you elaborate on that? Oh yeah. I mean, the, you go into this again, I went from a a pretty 
like no structure environment. And then, you know, school, high school did some team sports. This is a little more structure, but like, there's no structure. There's no bureaucracy, like military structure and bureaucracy. Like, right. first of all, you have the hierarchy of rank is so important. Everything is spelled out in these books, these, these regulations and field manuals. And I learned that it's while rank is important, something above rank is knowledge of the rules. If you know the rules, oh. you can actually, because the rules are written by, you know, the highest levels, right? They're generals wrote the rules. And so, you know, I was a private, but if I knew something that was counter to what my sergeant was saying, but I could point to it in the field manual, in the regulations, then oh, I was okay. right and he was wrong. So that right. became a little bit of a game that I would play as I would, I would learn all of the rules, even sometimes not to my advantage. I, you know, just do it to be, you know, problematic. Be like, <laughs> wait, actually, we're supposed to be doing this and not this or do it a different way. And they'd be like, yeah, but that's a pain and we don't want to do it that way. You know, so um, the, but then when you see that kind of thing operate at the massive scale and you're like, the reason everything is again, sort of like encoded in this way is so that it's all interoperable at all times. Like if you forget to write the numbers down on the form, the form can't get to the right place to make sure the next shipment comes in, which supports mm. the people behind you. Like all of that stuff is interconnected and you start to see kind of the, the beauty of these complex systems that interact. And I was, I was super into that because, you know, suddenly like that world, that world makes sense. And it's based on logic. Even if you can't see it, you can kind of trust that it's there working, maybe not for your individual benefit, but for the larger benefit, mm -hmm. you know, as, as you're going forward. And I think that that kind of like interacting with that, playing with it, poking at it a little bit. I like to find the edge cases and find where things break. You know, it comes yeah. from like reading through a lot of those manuals and really like absorbing a lot of that bureaucracy and process from a place of admiration. Like I, I do love to, you know, QA some software and find it and make it break. But I want to do that on software that I love, not on, you know, like if it's garbage software, I'm not going to, I don't care enough to try to break it. So it comes from a place of appreciation and making it better, hopefully. Wow. I mean, as I'm listening to you, I'm just in my mind, I'm just imagining there's this military machine and you're trying to deconstruct that and you're trying to find edge cases for yourself. And then on this other hand, there is this huge financial machine and like human IQ, it's basically a de deconstruction of like that complex idea to a very personal level where everybody can relate to it. I, those I, there's definitely a a relationship between those two things. I think as soon as I detect a larger structure at play that has some effect on me, I want to understand it. And I think going all the way back to the way that I learn, I understand it by playing with it, you know, by experimenting and getting hands on and being like, what can I do to it? What can I, if I poke it here, what happens? You know, like, like that's my version of understanding. So yeah, I, I think all of that stuff, like, again, going back to the, the, idea of this podcast, it loops back and back and back and back all the way to the beginning for sure. Right. And, and I was a part of the On Deck Fellowship, which is kind of a community for like startup founders and like podcasters and newsletters. And I experienced the power of community at a very personal level when I went through that cohort, because there was a group of like, I think 150 people. And then you had small groups where you would interact with people every single week. But I experienced this in a very sort of internet native thing. And you first experienced this in Oregon. And I wonder how that was like and how it impacted your life's trajectory. Yeah, Oregon was interesting because I, I was getting out of the army and being I didn't want to go back to Alaska. And so I had had some friends go there after high school and, and go to college. And so I basically chose it arbitrarily. I was like, I'm going to go where I have friends. Cause I'm, you know, being in the army, you don't get to choose where you live and you don't get to really choose who your friends are or who you <laughs> want to be around. So I had two friends there and I just decided, all right, that's where I'm going to go at least as a landing point. And the, that would, I mean, transitions are always hard, right? Anytime you're moving from one mode into another, but going from military structure into civilian structure was really, really hard because suddenly oh. everything is taken care of when you're in the military, like they tell you when to get up, they tell you what to eat, they tell you what to wear, everything. Suddenly I was presented with all of these decisions right. to make. And it's like, you can do, if you can do whatever you want, how do you know what to do? It's almost like the options were too wide. You know, I, I, I wanted them to be maybe more narrowly focused right. and through watching friends. And I think similar to what you were saying, I think 
those first friends really became my cohort in a way. And they were doing a lot of creative projects. It was a lot of, again, musicians, artists, and writers were the people I was really hanging out with the most. And I'm not a musician and I'm not an artist and I'll maybe write a newsletter, but I'm not like, you know, I don't, I don't creatively engage in those mediums. And so I always felt, again, I think a little bit of an outsider and didn't know how to engage with those people. And it was really through combining the internet with what those people were doing. And when they started to see that value that I kind of found my space in the middle there and was able to combine those and be like, Oh, I can help you get online. I can help you do these things. I can, you know, we can, we can join forces together in this way. That's a little bit, you know, like useful to you because you need help there and useful to me because I need friends, you know, like whatever the sort of that, that relationship was. And I think that's where a lot of that started for me. And so the politics coming out of that group were really like anti-corporate, you know, like it was, you know, like the battle of Seattle and, and a lot of like protest movements. I think George Bush called Portland little Beirut because every time he would go there, there'd be these massive protests and things, you know, which we saw again with, with Black Lives Matter and Trump and everything as well. So there's a real history of anti-establishment, you know, kind of like thought and and kind of anarchy and co-ops and a lot of that thinking comes out of there. So I don't, I wasn't actively absorbing that stuff, but I was definitely, it was, you know, it was around me enough that it was definitely impacting me. Hmm. Wow. And since you've been close to that system, what are the ingredients that make a town like that? Man, I mean, everyone for a while, there was a couple of years there where Portland was a very attractive idea to, I think, to America, like the Portlandia TV show is on and people were really looking at it as this kind of ideal place. So I think a lot of people have tried to deconstruct it in a way. And I, I, you know, I can only speak to like my tiny little piece of it, but for me, what I got out of it is it's, it's better to have a lot of small things than it is to have a big thing. You know, like I'd, Mm -hmm. I'd rather have a, you know, small town strip with a lot of small businesses than a Walmart it's more convenient to go to Walmart. Your prices are better at Walmart. Like there's a lot of advantages to a Walmart, but as a citizen in those places, I'd rather like go in and have a relationship at the hardware store, at the bookstore, at the, you know, uh, small grocery store, et cetera. So I think, I think you also have less, you're safer that way as well. Cause if one of those businesses goes away, it's like, okay, I lost a bookstore. If Walmart pulls out, you lose all of them. You know, you right. lose your entire infrastructure that you, that you rely on. So I just think that these like many small things is actually a lot stronger than one big thing, or at least right. less risky. Right. And what are you reading these days? What are the ideas that are attracting you? So this is going to seem like I'm showing off, but um, I'm literally reading right now the dialogues of Plato. Okay. <laughs> but there's a good reason why. Because of, it's because of sandwiches. A friend of mine who's a college professor said that I had to read this because for the longest time, years and years and years, I've, I'll get people to argue about what is a sandwich. Okay. And it's the most fun thing to get friends to argue about because as soon as you start to tell me what a sandwich is, I'll ask you, yeah, well, what about this? And what about this? Oh. <laughs> is, is a pita a sandwich? Is a hot dog a sandwich? And, you know, eventually you're arguing like, what is bread? Is bread important to a sandwich? All these different okay. things. So I've been arguing about this for a long time and had this idea came up that basic, this would be an amazing argument to have with children instead of with adults. And so I've been, I have this presentation that I've been giving to kids uh, and it's all these like images, some of which are really boring sandwiches, some of which are crazy sandwiches. It's been so fun to watch them freak out with the idea of like <laughs> how to define something, how to use logic to build something. Wow. And as they're, if they're a little bit older, you'll kind of trap them in a definition and they won't want to give it up. So they'll be like, Oh, I guess that's a sandwich. Cause I said this or that. Mm. And it all comes back to Plato, you know, which I I'd never read cause you know, I never went to college. So my friend is a college professor basically assigned me uh, Plato. And I have to say it's way more fun than I expected because <laughs> it's all about Socrates being an asshole and oh. challenging everyone and saying like, like he's <laughs> such a jerk all the time. And he's always like undermining everyone's beliefs, but he's like, I can't help it. That's just the way I think of things. And so it's, it's pretty fun uh, 
So that's that's been my current assignment is uh, reading the platonic dialogues. <laughs> wow. And what does your routine look like these days? Uh, like, how do you deconstruct the entire day? I just started using this app that I, I just started paying for. I just hit the end of the free trial called Sunsama. Have you heard of this? No. It's It's pretty simple. But basically what I do is I have my to-do list and kind of a backlog of ideas. I just throw them all unorganized into Trello. And what this app does is basically using APIs, like pulls all that stuff and says, okay, in the morning, you do this little workflow of like, here's your appointments. What do you want to work on? And you kind of slot everything in. And it's really good at saying like, put time on everything in categories. You can track it later. But also if you, if you put too much in, like if you're more than like five or six hours, it's like, Hey, that's maybe too much because okay. it knows like, you know, if you're, if you sit down to do like six hours of work, there's mm. going to be interruptions. There's going to be other stuff you have to do <laughs> all these different things. And so I've really been enjoying using this app to kind of break out the different parts of my day, create weekly goals to kind of like move everything along. I, I have a bad tendency to start a thousand projects and then, but the problem with that is then they move incrementally slowly because <laughs> it's like you're only working on a little bit one i know mentally that if i put them if i just worked on one and then yeah. had a success then i could work on the next one have a success but it's so hard i want i want i want to just be doing everything all the time so that's something i fight against it's funny because my next question was how do you defend your time being a public person <laughs> <laughs> the the publicly traded person stuff i think is probably you know i don't think it's more than like two hours a day of active time. I think there's a lot of passive time. There's a lot of time I'm thinking about it, like a new vote comes up or something like that. But a lot of it's, especially now that I've been doing it so long, a lot of it's internalized. So I use that a lot as a check-in. Is this a good idea? Even informally, we have a Slack channel with my shareholders. So I can kind of talk about stuff. I post my like daily standup to there and people can kind of be like, oh, what's this project? Like, oh, I haven't told you guys about that. I'll I'll, you know, go into detail, stuff like that. So, but that doesn't feel like the work of being a publicly traded person, which feels more like when we're doing a vote or when I'm, you know, trying to reach out and put a project together or something like that. If people are doing IPOs today, would you recommend uh, them putting like stuff from the personal life on a vote? Like how do you balance being at a good practice and the uh, cons of that? Yeah, I think that it probably isn't for everyone. The advantages are huge for me though. Like just writing up a vote ends up being a really almost like therapy session with myself. Cause I have to go through and really like a lot of times you'll have a feeling about what you want to do and I have to write it up in words. Is it, what's the one page, wasn't it like an Amazon thing where they write everything up right, like right. a one page memo? Yeah. I, yeah. I think it's, it's almost a version of that. <laughs> I have to write it up super simply and just say, here's my understanding of it, pros and cons. And then there's, and I'll post that and then there'll be comments and we'll all talk about it. So there might be things I didn't think about, or, you know, I might have to go back and change it based on what someone said, be like, oh, right, let me add that in. Okay. And, you know, votes usually run between, you know, one to five days, depending on how long we want the conversation to go. But just that process of writing it up is something I would recommend to people. I think sharing those kind of things with people is great. I'm not sure that voting and having people vote based on number of shares purchased is as good for one's personal life as it might make more sense in like a company or a collective project or something like that. So I think that's where this project of mine is a little bit of an experiment. Like I don't know that that part is necessarily the best way for everyone to make decisions. It's fun though. I mean, it's it adds stakes and I think those stakes make it really fun for the people, for the shareholders. Like they get to actually see the impact of some of these decisions. And can you talk a little bit about the ROI of vulnerability? I think accountability is huge. And and again, I think for me, going back to kind of my, you know, my core wound of being lonely, I think it provides me a lot of feelings of really like fundamental safety to just have people around, even if they are, you know, on the internet, sort of this kind of cloud of shareholders. I think I think for me that allows me to operate a little bit more aggressively and say like I know that I'm going to do this cuz I I said I would, it was voted on and now I'm being held accountable. And so I think the return on investment of like having shareholders and and this kind of like stock price that can really bum you out when it goes down, you know, is it, it's kind of a motivating force. It's it's 
adds an element of kind of really kind of a play to everyday activities. You know, like I might commit to, I do these like monthly challenges. And so I'll be like, I'm going to try to do this every day this month. You know, okay. and if I'm not successful, it's like, I'll be like, Oh man, it's 1030 at night. I better try <laughs> to get that, you know, get that done because I know I'm going to have to go back and account for that. And it right. makes these, it, it does kind of create like a game like element to a lot of this stuff. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Man. And I guess this is my last question. You have, operated in the fringes for so long and you have worked on these ideas that were not a concept by a wide, wide margin 10, 12, 13 years back. And right now, I think with any entrepreneur working in crypto space, they are operating in the fringes. They know that something good is going to come out of it. They don't know how because they, the frameworks are not there. The basic infrastructure is not set up and a ton of things are happening all the time. What is your advice to somebody like that who is operating in such space because you've been in that mind space for so long? I think it's important that your win condition for yourself is not a financial outcome. Mm. If, if you're operating to achieve something that is either a you know systemic change in the way things work or proof of a concept or to help other people or, or you know make sure that well, what you're defining isn't like I know I've won when the stock price is really high or when I have a certain number of shareholders. Whenever I've focused on those goals, I start doing things that aren't as good for the project. But when I'm focusing on what's like, oh, I have this like question that makes me feel a little uncomfortable and I'm not sure about, like, oh, that's going to be a good shareholder question. You know, like yeah. when I'm providing, like it's a little bit of entertainment value to shareholders, but also like the value to me is very real because it helps me figure something out. That's, that's when the project works the best. And so I think to scale that idea out and say, operate, operate on those principles of how do you, how do you pursue something where even if your entire startup fails, you still know that you succeeded, right? How do you find success in that? There's plenty of times printing projects of mine that have failed where I'm like, I'm like, okay, great. That way didn't work. Let's try it a different way. You know, I mean, this project of selling shares of myself, it was supposed to be all about projects. And it's not now. It's about my personal life. That was not any idea I had going into it. Like that was a right. real classic pivot, you know, for, for a startup. And so I think just looking for that stuff and 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 keep going. Even if even if the individual company that you start to solve a problem fails, that problem still exists. Go after it a different way, you know, or right. go chase a different problem. But use those same things you learned whether they're just really functional thing about how a business works, which is like, when you start a startup, you have to learn everything, you know, mm. and maybe you're not good at finance. Maybe you're not good at human resources. You have to still have to do it all. Next time you do it, you're going to be better at those parts. You can focus more on the problem space, you know? So I think, I think from that angle of like continually chasing those problems and make sure that it's, make sure you're attacking a problem that like, no matter what happens, you're going to keep doing it. Like, what problem would you attack if you had no resources at all? And would you just continually try and try and try? I think that's a good problem to, to go after. Wow. Wonderful advice, Mike. And thank you for your time. This was Thanks awesome. so much. I, I really appreciate yeah, the conversation. It was fun to like dive into and feel like we got into some parts that aren't part of my normal talking about this stuff. So it was really, really fun. I loved it.